I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Today's case has been requested by quite a few of our listeners. I'm going to warn you now, it's a rough one. So trigger warning, today we're talking about child abuse. We understand that this type of case is not easy for many of us to hear, so feel free to pick a number of our other episodes to listen to or re-listen to. We also have additional content on Patreon if you feel so inclined. Oregon is a bit of a mixed bag type of a state. We're a large state with a lot of farming land, so naturally we see a split on political views here. And I'm not even meaning just blue and red. We have a colorful history of people moving to Oregon to live autonomously. Things like start your own cult, or maybe you just come here to avoid sales tax. Alicia has done a great job outlining some of the Oregon history in many of her cases. And through the good and the bad, I think we can all agree it's a fascinating state. And it's also an interesting place when it comes to the death penalty which is apparently a topic I've only just realized I have an interest in. In 2010, a major trial would hit the media here in Oregon, one that would make waves, a woman possibly facing the death penalty. I previously talked about Washington's death penalty in our episode, Wicked Part of Me. So before we get into the case, as per my usual spiel, let's talk a little bit about the death penalty and what it's like here in Oregon. We currently do have capital punishment in Oregon. In recent years, the definition of aggravated murder was altered by Senate Bill 1013. That meant that the scope around who can be given the death penalty would change. Aggravated murder is now defined as, quote, certain acts of terrorism, prison murders by those already incarcerated for a prior murder, premeditated murders of children aged 13 or younger, and premeditated murders of law enforcement personnel. That's very interesting about it being if you're in prison. Yeah, so it's basically that's the same thing as you've already done in a violent yeah. murder. I wonder if that's just a deterrent to be like, you don't want to be in that hallway. So that I don't know if that changed. I think it's always been that. That's interesting. I'm I not quite that. sure, but isn't it? Yeah. I learned something new every day from you, Emily. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. We hear a lot of very well-researched arguments on capital punishment for it and against it. And as we watch other states abolish it, I'm reminded that the history here in Oregon has been finicky. In 2016, a study was published that says each death penalty case costs between $800,000 and $1 million, which is far more expensive than housing a person for their entire life sentence. And when you pair that with the idea that the death penalty doesn't seem to give families of victims any more satisfaction than a life in prison sentence, you start to question why we do it. The current reign of capital punishment has been in place since it was reinstated in 1984, but only two people have been executed since then, and those happened in 1996 and 1997. While we have the death penalty and we currently have 29 people sitting on death row, it's unlikely that they're going to be executed anytime soon. And here's why. In 2011, the governor at the time, John Kitzhopper, canceled the execution of death row inmate Gary Haugen and then announced a moratorium or a hold on all other executions during his time in office. Our current governor, Kate Brown, agreed with that decision and decided to continue it through her term. So what happened prior to 1984? Well, it's basically like any other political issue. It went back and forth with the political winds. In the old-timey days, there were many executions, and quite a few of them were of Native Americans, which you're going to hear about in our next episode from Alicia, so stay tuned for that. 
It was banned from 1914 to 1920. Then it was allowed again. Then it was banned again in 1964 to 1978. In 1978, there was a measure that passed, Measure 8, that required the death penalty for some murder cases. And this one is kind of intense. The measure basically said that after a murderer is found guilty in court, they would go before a judge. If the judge believed beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed the crime deliberately, knowing death would occur, that the person was a continued threat to society, they murdered without provocation, then they were to get the death penalty. If the judge questioned any of those items, it was a minimum 25 years. This measure also requested that a gas chamber would need to be constructed, and that would cost the state $130,000. This was overturned in 1981 by the Supreme Court. So 1984 rolls around and Measure 6 pops up, and this would once again make the death penalty available. And here we are today. You get the point. That's really shocking that it came down to a judge. Because as we've seen in the last couple of years mm -hmm. with things coming out about judges, to have it come down to that is really shocking. There's a little more to it. Like, it's the same concept of you you get your guilty verdict and then you go to another trial for sentencing. It's a similar concept, but it's in front of a judge. But the Supreme Court does review them, the Oregon Supreme Court. So if anything crazy was going on, they would flag it. That's good. But it was still very harsh. That's a lot of murder convictions yeah that would probably fall under that so you could see why the supreme court overturned Mm -hmm. it that all being said some of you likely support it and whether you do or you don't that's okay but today's case is one of those ones where you're probably going to go well if anyone deserved it it would be this person so let's get into it in 2006 a eugene school official opened a letter from a 12 year old student in the letter the girl detailed how she was being abused at home Food was withheld, and when it was given, it was usually turned into some form of punishment by her parents, like the time her mom forced her to eat chili peppers. While this letter prompted an investigation, no one knew the utter tragedy that would later happen, one that could have been avoided. This is the case of the torture murder of Jeanette Maples. Angela Darlene Fusey was born on October 2, 1968. Her mother, Nancy, who was 18 at the time of her birth, already had two young sons from two different men. She had her first child, Mike, at the young age of 15, followed shortly thereafter with the birth of Charlie. Her new beau, Jerry Fusey, was considered attractive, but he was a tough guy, covered in tattoos, obsessed with motorcycles, and striking fear in nearly everyone who met him. Jerry was also hiding a secret. Jerry married Nancy about a year after Angela was born, and within another year, their son Jerry Jr. was born. They went on to have one more son together, George. As Jerry and Nancy grew their family in Sacramento, California, Jerry also started another family. Not long after Angela's birth, Nancy was made aware that Jerry had another lover, Rebecca. While Nancy was pregnant with Angela, Rebecca was pregnant with Jerry's son, Tony. Nancy demanded that Jerry end things with Rebecca. Initially, he abided by her rules, and Rebecca went on to date another man and have another daughter, Cecilia. By the way, if you're confused by this family tree, don't fret. I'll have a visual up on the blog for anyone who's curious. I personally had to sketch this out while I was reading. The Fusey family remained intact, but not for long. By 1972, Nancy and Jerry separated, and Nancy was living with her five children in a small hotel room. 
Jerry had gone back to his unfaithful ways and there were allegations of abuse. Tragedy would strike the Fusey children one year later. In July of 1973, 23-year-old Nancy Fusey went out dancing at a nightclub in Sacramento. Then she disappeared. The next day, the morning of the 22nd, her body was discovered on Pleasant Grove Road by a passing fisherman. She was partially nude and had 29 stab wounds all over her body. Nancy Fusey's murder had been one of significant speculation. If you search her name, you'll see her identified as a possible victim of the Santa Rosa hitchhiker murders. This was a series of seven murders from 1972 to 1973. The FBI then went on to suggest that there were 14 additional unsolved homicides between 1972 and 1974 that could likely be the very same perpetrator. Nancy was one of these murders. So who did the FBI suspect committed these unsolved murders? Well, the list is long. First, there was the Zodiac Killer. Then there was Arthur Lee Allen. He was arrested for child molestation and lived in the area. Then Ted Bundy, who we all know. And then Frederick Manali, who also lived in the area and was in a car accident that led to police finding sadomasochistic drawings of a student in his car. The student happened to be one of the victims. And lastly, the Hillside Stranglers. But none of these men were ever truly linked to these murders. There is someone else who wasn't really looked at for Nancy's murder, and that was Jerry Fusey. When George Fusey, Nancy's youngest son, grew to be an adult, his father's best friend disclosed to him that the night Nancy was murdered, she had been with Jerry and his friends. The next day, Jerry made some cryptic comments to his friend about Nancy's death. Even Jerry's mother went to investigators to suggest that they dig into his past and consider him a suspect. But it's unsolved to this very day. Why does it seem like it's always opposite where... They always look at the husband. It's always the opposite where it's like the husband didn't do it. So they're like, we are hyper focused on this husband. Come on. And then they're like, look at all these serial killers, guys. Uh, We have no way. It was like serial killer hype time, though. But if you look at him, it's like he's got a history of drugs, bad behavior. He hangs out with motorcycle gangs. They've been separated. It was messy. He cheated on her. Why the shit weren't they looking at him in the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, it's very My brain immediately, the second you said it, I was like, oh, and then he killed her. Well, and I'm going to try to get a hold of George because this happened in fairly recent years. I think it was 2009. He was at a funeral and the friend approached him. His dad was there and he mentioned wearing a do-rag. And the friend was like, listen, your dad said some really sus things. So what's happening with it? Because he had a friend in the police force that he passed this info to and they were going to look into it. So I'm wondering if maybe they are looking at it now. Oh, interesting. But, you know, 2009 was a while ago. So I'm going to reach out to him and see if maybe he's willing to talk. That'd be interesting. While police tried to make sense of what happened to Nancy, it was merely swept under the rug by Jerry, who took custody of their five children. Jerry was now back with Rebecca, raising his son, Tony, and her daughter, Cecilia. They now had seven children living in a two-bedroom home and would be adding yet one more in 1975, the youngest, Cindy. Life with Jerry Fusey was documented in George Fusey's book, Inside Those Walls. He describes every single day filled with abuse, from mental to physical and, of course, the withholding of food. 
He's detailed recollections of his punishments his father would dish out if someone ate food without asking, and it's overall very brutal. He regularly physically abused his girlfriend, Rebecca, and about every six months, it went from casual daily abuse to a knockout fight where she would lose consciousness and wake up with her entire body bruised and bleeding. Typically, after one of those big fights, she would pack up and leave with her three biological children, Tony, Cecilia, and Cindy. Without fail, they would return, and Jerry's other kids had relief over this. As we've talked about in other cases like Wallowing, the Shelley Nautic story, it's a relief to share abuse among the many rather than leave it to the few. So while they were gone, the five Fusey children were taking all of the abuse, but when they were back, four more people would share Jerry's attention. George mentions that typically the abuse was with fists, but there were times where you had to pick your own weapon. The way the book reads, it sounds like the abuse does decrease as the children get older, but he definitely leaves you with the realization that every day was awful and every kid looked forward to the day that they could finally leave and never look back. Each of the children left the home with their own baggage from a childhood with an abusive father. Most used it as an example of how not to parent and went on to live happy and full lives, while others dabbled in crime and drugs. Most of the children lost touch over time and saw each other at a funeral or a rare holiday gathering. It's likely easier to escape that kind of life when you don't have to see the faces of those that shared it with you. I think we can safely assume that all of the children in Jerry's household were utterly shocked at how their sister Angela would grow up. Little did they know that the shy little girl would be the one most like her father, a monster to her own children. Angela was Jerry, but worse. Angela Fusey left home as a 16-year-old girl after meeting a man who was a carnival worker. During their time together, she started using drugs. Eventually, that relationship fizzled and she met Anthony Maples. The two had three children together, Anthony Jr., Brandon, and Jeanette. Angela and Anthony were very into drugs, not only doing them, but selling them. It wasn't long before the two were arrested and jailed on drug charges. There were also rumors of abuse and neglect as the two were focused more on their next fix than raising their children together. At the time, their kids were aged 6, 5, and 1, so naturally they would need to go into the foster care system. Typically, children are placed with family when they can be. Now, Angela has a fairly big family. However, the family is not close, and they were all traumatized by their childhood of abuse. All of Angela's siblings essentially declined to house the children, though a few of them really did consider it. The reasons given for this range from young families with their own children and tight budgets to couples trying to have their own children who just weren't ready for the commitment of raising children of abuse. And you won't guess who ended up housing these children. Jerry and Rebecca. George believes that this was due to the government money, since Jerry and Rebecca hardly ever worked. They grew up living off of welfare. Once Angela was out of jail and clean from drugs, her goal was to get her kids back, and eventually she was given visitation. She was already in a new relationship and had a fourth child, Patience, with another man. She was ready to regain her children and start anew. Her father was frustrated by this. He didn't think she should have custody and even refused to let her come visit her children. After a few months, Jerry didn't want to deal with Angela and allow the court-ordered visitation anymore, so he ended up giving up custody of the kids. 
Angela and her kids then went to court to sort out custody, and the judge actually gave the children a choice. The older boys chose not to go with her, and they wanted to stay in foster care. The youngest daughter, Jeanette, didn't remember her mother at all, so she decided to go be with her and her new baby sister. Things appeared to be back on track. Angela had her two daughters and was renting a home in Sacramento. She also had a new boyfriend, Richard McAnulty, a truck driver from Oregon. The two got married and had a child together, Richard Jr. Angela's family started noticing differences in how Angela would parent between her children. She seemed to pick on Jeanette and treated her more harshly than she would Patience or Richard Jr., Unfortunately, this was foreshadowing a great tragedy in their near future. In 2005, the McAnulty family relocated from Sacramento, California to Eugene, Oregon. The children were enrolled in public school. Jeanette had great attendance in middle school and did very well at her assignments, but there were a number of signs that alluded to issues at home. Her social interactions were minimal and awkward. She dressed in tattered and dirty clothing, but most alarming was that she was seriously underweight. Classmates and teachers at Cascade Middle School noticed that Jeanette was dangerously thin. She was always hungry and rarely had food of her own. Her friends would often share their lunches with her. A cafeteria worker named Michelle Mullins started giving Jeanette free school lunches because she was so concerned about the girl's health. On one occasion, she actually asked Jeanette to show her what her mom had packed her for lunch. And inside the bag, she found a single piece of cheese and a cracker. Eventually, Jeanette came to Mullins crying and told her that she could no longer eat the free lunches because her mom started noticing that she was gaining weight. Mullins was one of the many adults that would call Child Protective Services about Jeanette Maples. These rumblings of issues with Jeanette's malnutrition coincided with the letter Jeanette herself wrote to get help. An investigation eventually gets opened, and unfortunately, this is yet another example of why Oregon needs to focus on improving child services. Between the years 2005 and 2009, a minimum of six calls were made to CPS about Jeanette Maples. This came from a variety of sources, teachers, school staff, family members, and other students' parents. Literally everyone at school who Jeanette interacted with knew something was seriously wrong. When a friend at school noted some bruises on Jeanette, she asked about it, and then she learned that she was suffering greatly at home. She described to her friend that she wasn't allowed to eat and that her mother regularly hit her. So her friend, being a good friend, told her parents. The mother then called CPS, and that's what triggered that investigation. It's like the letter and the calls were all coming together, so I don't know exactly which one triggered it, but it sounds like that call coincided with the letter, so they had to do something about it. It is so shocking to me, these cases that you find, because I've called CPS many times. And they do their job? And I had one time where I called, and I was like, I have no information. I have nothing. I just have to report this. I'm a mandatory person. And they were like, okay, we don't really. Every other time, the next day, somebody was at school talking to the kid, pulling them aside. Like, we all had it scheduled. We yeah. knew when it was happening I feel every like, single time. I feel like these cases that happen when it is really bad and somebody fucked up, it's because the parents are can talk their way out of it, too. Mm. Like, maybe it is followed up on. Like, you look at the case I did about the little Corvallis girl mm-hmm. and about how her mom was charismatic. She could talk her way out of anything. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, there definitely I f- are those aspects. And it depends on where this call was happening. Like, 
you know, sure. what part of town. Eugene is a big city. There, oh, yeah. So it is a little, I would imagine, a little harder to get to everyone in a yeah. timely manner. But over six called six were the documented ones that everyone knew. There were more. CPS corroborated the reports by speaking with teachers at school who suggested that the girl was frightened of her mother and very underfed. The next step was to visit her home. Angela spoke to CPS and denied all claims against her and then went on to say that her daughter was a compulsive liar who couldn't be taken seriously. And then the case was closed. Shortly thereafter, Angela pulls Jeanette out of school to be homeschooled by herself. The abuse escalates and Angela's own mother-in-law confronts her about Jeanette's appearance. Angela says it's nothing, that the child had a fall, and then she denies her access to see her grandchildren. Lynn McAnulty calls CPS to report what she's seen, her granddaughter who is severely underweight and has significant wounds on her face. Lynn called CPS multiple times, including the days just prior to her granddaughter's horrific death. At roughly 8 p.m. on December 9, 2009, a 911 call was made in Eugene, Oregon, detailing that a teen girl was not breathing. Paramedics arrived to find Angela McAnulty calling for help on the front lawn, saying, help my baby. But one paramedic described that the scene was odd and that something seemed off. Her pleas sounded contrived. She went on to tell them that her daughter's heart had stopped while she was sleeping on the living room floor. They went inside to find 15-year-old Jeanette Maples unresponsive on the living room floor. She was visibly malnourished and had open wounds all over her body, some of which were severe enough that bone was exposed. Her patchy, thinning hair was wet, and she was partially dressed, and there on the back of her head was a bloody wound in the shape of a circle. Jeanette was taken by ambulance to the hospital and pronounced dead by 8.42 p.m. Her body was in a terrible state. It was evident that the child had been suffering from long-term abuse. The emergency room physician that pronounced Jeanette dead had said that she had the worst abuse injuries that she's ever seen in real life as well as in textbooks. Jeanette was so underweight that her body looked like a child half her age. She had bruises and cuts in many stages of healing all over her face. At the hospital, police separated Angela and Richard to question them about what happened to Jeanette and eventually took them both to the police station so they could do a thorough interview. Angela initially went on the defense and claimed that Jeanette had fallen down the stairs where she got most of her bruises and cuts. She told police that her husband was typically the one to punish the children, not her. However, when police told her that they spoke to her family members who confirmed that Angela regularly punished Jeanette, she started to give a little bit more information. She claimed that Jeanette had split her lip, which made it hard for her to feed her, and that's why she was so thin. Eventually, she gave in and admitted to physically punishing her own daughter. Despite admitting to unsavory treatment of her daughter, she still claimed to have not caused the noticeable wound on her head. She claimed that had happened when she fell, a wound Angela was implying was the reason Jeanette was dead. Richard admitted to police that he had been discussing with Angela that he planned to take full blame for Jeanette's death because he thought that his health would mean that he could get a lighter sentence. He had recently had a heart attack that required a major surgery, so perhaps they wouldn't keep him in jail long. That's an interesting idea that suddenly people look, uh, well, we would put him away for murdering this but child, but he did have a heart attack. We so. need to take care of him. Uh, lighter sentence, please. 
Both Richard and Angela McAnulty were arrested for aggravated murder by intentionally maiming and torturing. After their arrests, investigators secured warrants for their current residence as well as their previous residence. Jeanette's abuse spanned such a long time that they would have subjected her to it in both homes. Police found evidence that the couple tried to cover up their tracks and clean up blood from their home. They also found several items that had been covered in Jeanette's blood, including belts, clothing, bedding, sticks, and cardboard, which was later explained as Jeanette's bed. Could you imagine living somewhere and the police show up? So first you're like panicked out the gate and then they're like, oh, we just need to search your house panicked what have i done oh no 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 not for you you. we're just gonna luminol the place to find a child's blood from where they abused her so bad so often there was a missing persons i'm working on a missing persons case for our coin segment Mm. and they went back like 10 years oh my god and and they we got to pull up your floor (gasps) and then they find out the the landlord had already done that so it was for nothing. That would be so mortifying. You're just living in this house and it was like previously a house of horrors. The risks of renting, my friend. Oh, my By gosh. new. <laughs> <laughs> the case was brought to the Lane County Grand Jury on December 16th, 2009. They approved aggravated murder charges and both McAnulty's would go to trial. Angela maintained her innocence right up to the first day of her trial. That day, February 1st, 2011, she changed her plea to guilty. Even with the guilty verdict, aggravated murder requires a jury trial for sentencing. The two-week penalty phase of her trial then commenced, and some seriously disturbing testimony came to light. The true extent of the suffering that Jeanette Maples endured at the hands of her mother and stepfather would finally leave the confines of their home. The trial kicked off with plenty of evidence of the abuse that Jeanette suffered. Prosecution diligently went through the details of the autopsy results with the medical examiner and ensured that the jury saw over 20 pictures of Jeanette's body the day she was pronounced dead at the hospital. At the age of 15, Jeanette Maples died at under 50 pounds. She had roughly 200 injuries on her body. Jeanette's face was severely bruised, and her mouth in particular was ravaged. She had deformed lips because the cuts were healing without sutures, so scar tissue was just forming everywhere. Most of her teeth were chipped and broken from the dozens of beatings she took to the face from shoes and fists and other objects. The medical examiner testified that somebody in the household had cut Jeanette's infected skin away from her wounds with a household knife. The cardboard that was discovered in the house, the cardboard that was Jeanette's bed, was there to soak up the blood and not cause damage to the floor. She had pneumonia that would have eventually sent bacteria into her blood that would cause shock and probably death. She was bleeding in her brain from the recent injury to the back of her head. She had been subjected to such prolonged starvation, causing her to have no fat and very little muscle tissue. She had so many injuries and infections that it was all but impossible to figure out what finally killed her. So on her official death certificate, the cause of death was listed as multifactorial abuse and neglect. Jeanette's body aside, the McAnulty home supported the argument that the abuse was prolonged and torturous. 
Many of the items in the home, including rulers, belts, sticks, pliers, the walls and the ceilings of the bedroom, were all tested and were revealed to have remnants of Jeanette's blood and even pieces of her flesh present. Jeanette's little sister Patience, who was age 14 at the time she took the stand, told the court her perspective of living in the McAnulty home. According to Patience, some of her earliest memories were that of the mistreatment of her older sister. She elaborated that when she was a toddler and Angela got Jeanette back at the age of seven, she began her mistreatment of the girl right away. She went on to say that while depriving Jeanette of food and water was a daily form of punishment both parents inflicted, they also physically abused her. Both Angela and Richard hit Jeanette regularly with the back of their hand as well as hitting her in the mouth with shoes. She continued to paint a picture of what her sister endured by walking the court through her memories of when Jeanette came back to live with them and how her mother didn't even like the girls talking to each other. When her mother married Richard in 2002, Jeanette spent most of her time hidden in a back bedroom, the same bedroom that would be used as the torture room where her mother would inflict abuse on her for hours. Angela would often run the vacuum cleaner to mask the sounds of Jeanette's screaming and whimpering so that her two younger siblings wouldn't have to hear it. Her mother asked Patience, or Jeanette herself, several times to go to the yard and collect dog feces. She would then take this and smear it all over Jeanette's face as punishment. Patience even described how her mother would make her eat and drink out of the dog bowls, which is, I mean, not as harsh as some of these punishments, but it's still just degrading. It's psychological. Degrading and controlling. Patience went on to tell the court how the day before her sister died, her mother had shown her the wound on the back of Jeanette's head and made a comment. And this is a rough quote. If someone was stabbed in the back of the head with a branch, it would cause brain damage. This was all coinciding with Jeanette already showing signs of brain damage. She was speaking incoherently to her sister the entire evening. Jeanette couldn't even stand up straight when she was in her daily punishment position, which was facing a wall, face against the wall, with her hands up above her head. So was she implying there that someone was penetrating her skull to like yeah, damage her brain? I think reading between the lines, which I just did this hand gesture where you put up three fingers because I have a very funny story about that reading between the lines I think she stabbed her in the back of the head with it and took it too far and that's what caused the brain damage that but day. she was maybe hoping to just kind of a Dahmer effect maybe yeah maybe and I think that was so they found sticks in the house which were off, often used to whip her but I think perhaps they found the branch in question mm. um, because it had like a flat edge and, and it was circular, oh, which was matched correspond to the, to the wound. Oh, that makes sense. As I mentioned earlier, CPS came to the household to check up on things. They had interviewed patients and in court when asked why she didn't tell welfare workers what was happening to her sister and instead reported that, quote, Jeanette was fine. She said that her mother preached to the children regularly that, quote, what happens in the house stays in the house. It was clear that all of the children were very scared of their mother after witnessing what she regularly did to Jeanette. Richard McAnulty also testified in Angela's trial. He claimed that his main crime was failing to protect Jeanette from her mother and that he had never actually been the one to hurt her. He described how Angela would turn up the TV, take Jeanette into the back room, have Jeanette take off her clothes, and then she would begin whipping her. 
Now, he was a long-haul truck driver, which meant he spent a lot of time away from the home. So he said that he didn't really know the true extent of the abuse that his wife was inflicting. But he had a heart attack in 2009, which classified him as disabled, so he was home during that time. The other stepdaughter, Patience, testified that the abuse worsened when he was at home. Jeanette even showed her stepfather blood spatters in the room the day before she died. He knew. He knew exactly what was happening. Yeah, and if people are turning on the TV and turning on the vacuum and you all know why, whether you raised your hand or not, you're an adult, you're just as guilty. Absolutely. Angela had tried to convince Richard to help her bury Jeanette when they found her unresponsive on the floor. She wanted to avoid telling the police and just get rid of her. And while he ultimately did the right thing and called police, let's mention it now, he had called his own mother first. She had to tell him to call police. That was something I had written down about the nerve of having done this and then running out and going, oh, we need help because she's hurt. It's like it's going to be pretty obvious pretty quickly. And I was surprised that they didn't go, oh, she got so upset with us. She ran away. And yeah, it's a little delusional. And, you know, we see this a lot in these um, mother abusing their children where they're just like, do they think they can get away with it? And then they play up this. Maybe they do because they do get away with it so long. I mean, I think about so. You might agree with this on my scale to one to bad mom. You know, what comes to mind is Diane Downs. But this Mm. woman is far worse. At least Mm -hmm. Diane Downs, like, had the intent to do it quickly. Yeah, it was like a one and done. Mm -hmm. Whereas a mother long term, years and years of starving your children and, and hitting them. It's unfathomable to me. So, I mean, clearly there's mental issues there, I would imagine, but they all react similarly, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. And while it's very clear that Angela was the one who committed the most abuse, Richard's claims of not being involved and not knowing was in total contradiction to what his stepdaughter was saying to the court, that both of her parents participated in the abuse against Jeanette. Angela's defense team attempted to take Richard's testimony and turn it into something they could benefit from. They were seeking a mistrial, claiming that Richard McAnulty made a deal with prosecutors to say these things on the stand so that he could secure a better deal for himself. After nearly two hours of going back and forth on this testimony, the judge finally denied the mistrial and agreed that prosecution did not make that deal. Eventually, Angela's family also took the stand. This was likely in an attempt to show some of Angela's humanity. Her brother talked about the abuse they suffered and the trauma that their mother's death had on them and likely how it impacted her. But this wasn't an excuse. Even her own brother reflected that when he looked at her in court, he thought to himself, she deserves to die. But it was important to give context about her life because she's up against a death penalty. And it is a little bit both ways because you hear her abuse from her dad and it's horrible and you do want to be sympathetic and go, oh, no wonder she did that. That's what she knows. That's the cycle of abuse. And on the other hand, you go, well, then you know what that feels like. So it almost makes it that much worse. And why one child? It's like my mini where I have about the bank robbery. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Where once you've it's, learned something is so, so painful, how could you possibly inflict it? So it's it's a weird balance. It's kind of 50-50 of it does give you compassion to go, this is what she knew. Right. But it's also then she knew better. But I do get really confused by how she chose which child got that abuse. Here's this child who never had a mother, really, 
she chose to be with you. You'd almost think she'd be the one you'd. That was my question. Was your... why her? Yeah, and you know, in a lot of cases, it's the stepchild, or you mm-hmm. know, yeah, the step parent is abusing the non biological child. But in this one, it was her biological child. I don't know if it maybe had something to do with the ex, yeah, her father, the, the father, or being like angry that the that the brothers she had didn't want to be with you, that she had gone to live with the dad during that time. She didn't. She went with her grandfather. Uh, that's what I meant. Yeah, with her, with her dad. Yeah, her dad. <laughs> so that. The fact that she had gone with her grandfather, the abusive dad, mm-hmm. you know, from before, was that something where maybe she thought he had she had yeah. already experienced That's it? That's why I'm desperate for this woman to write us back because yeah. I just wanted a comment from her on yeah. something. But I'm, I'm guessing she's not allowed to. Yeah, because there's something there of like, was she... Because she spent time with her abusive dad where she's like, I know my dad's abusive. And then she was raised by him for six years. So did she... Yeah, I don't know. Get abused by her grandpa and then come home to mom and mom I would hates love the dad. Or... to read like the psychological evaluation on her, um, mm-hmm. which we'll briefly touch on. But there's so much to her brain that I just. Yeah. Or did did dad, grandpa, Jerry, did he adore this child? You know, good did, point. Did I didn't he, know anything about did that. Did he totally turn around when he had to raise his grandchild for a few years? Did he totally turn it around? I and doubt then it. the daughter, I know, right? <laughs> but that can happen sometimes yeah, where then true. maybe the mom looks and says, Golden child, why did I get Why did I have to get abused by you? And yeah. she's fine. Well, I'll show her. That's a possibility. I mean, there's a I, lot. I mean, it all is a possibility, but that, and that's And also, none an of it makes theory. sense. She could say why, and it would still be like, Well, no. True. Because <laughs> there's no brain versus a not healthy one. Yeah. The trial went on for 15 days and the jury had a big decision to make, life in prison or the death penalty. And while they deliberated on what to suggest to the judge, in true Oregon fashion, there needed to be a little bit of drama, the kind you think you would only see in a fictional television show. While we waited for Angela to go back into court for her sentencing, information hit the media about Richard McAnulty and how he had tried to escape prison. Richard waited for his court date in the Lane County Jail. During this time, a prisoner came forward with information. The information was that Richard and three other inmates planned to take over a jail Bible study group and take the leaders hostage. They wanted to demand weapons and a vehicle to flee to Mexico. The inmate claimed that Richard had a bar of soap in a sock and that was going to be his weapon to lead this escape, which is just kind of comical. That's a classic... You know, jail stereotype. We've, we've all seen Full Metal Jacket. <clears throat> oh, true. That's brutal. I forgot about that. Sheriffs intervened as Richard headed to Bible study and no soap was found. However, they did find a note in a cell with a list of items that he would need once he escaped. These included throwing knives, a choke rope and camping supplies. This jailhouse drama did not halt Angela's sentencing. After six hours of deliberation, the jury agreed that Angela McAnulty deliberately killed her daughter by torture, was likely to reoffend, and she killed her daughter without provocation. Lastly, they recommended that Angela be sentenced to death for the torture and murder of her 15-year-old daughter. Judge Kip Leonard agreed and formally sentenced her with the death penalty on February 25th, 2011. This made her the second woman in Oregon to receive the death penalty sentence and the first woman to be placed on Oregon's death row since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1984. Another rule in Oregon is that when a sentence of death is given, it must be reviewed by the Oregon Supreme Court. 
This allows the court to review and ensure that the judge didn't make any errors as well as reviewing defense's claims of errors. Defense did suggest that there were errors made and that the ruling should be reversed. However, the Oregon Supreme Court affirmed the conviction and said the ruling was lawful. McAnulty attorneys did push to have the United States Supreme Court review the case in 2005, but they declined. Richard McAnulty's aggravated murder trial was set for May of 2011, but in April, his attorney made an agreement with prosecution. He agreed to plead guilty in exchange for 25 years to life with the possibility of parole after the mandatory 25 years. His attorney was not totally happy with this deal, even though he made it. One of his arguments was that Richard had a very low IQ, one in the low 80s. He described that how in school he took special education and as an adult, he required very clear, explicit instructions on how to do his job. Psychology Today says that an IQ between 70 and 80 indicates borderline retardation. People with low IQs do have an increased chance of going to jail, but I've never been able to find something that says a low IQ or an IQ of 80 means you don't know right from wrong. He knew the abuse was wrong, but I think what the lawyer was trying to argue is that his low IQ made him susceptible to coercion and that his wife actually controlled everything he did. And also like the understanding of why it's wrong. I've had a lot of students that came from abusive homes and had really low IQ. And then you have parents that have low IQ as well. Yeah. And I think it's more like, I know it's wrong because it hurts or it makes me feel bad and I don't like it, but it's almost like... Um, but if she's telling me that I need to do yeah, it... Yeah, and it's like the the ability to communicate that and the ability to say it's wrong because they maybe can't really yeah. fill that in. I mean, in, granted, I'm talking about you know, little kids and middle school and high school kids, not like an adult, Dull, but yeah. um, it is that idea where you really have to sit and be like, and why would that be wrong? I just you know? don't know like, what well, no, he my mom would have me. accomplished. Like, or is he trying to get him in a different situation instead of a penitentiary or what? But yeah, um, I think a 25 year sentence for his part of it is pretty reasonable, to mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah. In the years since the death penalty ruling, some things have happened. And let me say, these timelines are bonkers. When we do cases, I guess I'm reminded every time how long it actually takes to go to trial. Oh, God. But in this particular case, it's pretty obvious. And so I know just keep that in mind when I say some of these dates. Okay. In February 2016, Angela McAnulty was given three additional attorneys. Their goal was to review her case and see if the previous attorneys did an adequate job. They spent months building a case to prove that they did not adequately represent her in trial. In April of 2018... Two years later, a 12-day trial was held where they could present their argument, and then another year later, their judge determined that the guilty plea would be vacated, meaning it's all canceled. No guilty of aggravated murder, no death penalty. It was time to start from scratch. Why, you might ask? Well, I'm going to quote a memo that went out from DA Patty Perlow of Lane County. The judge, J. Burdett Pratt, agreed with the new legal team that the previous attorneys, quote, failed to exercise reasonable professional skill and judgment, one, in advising her to plead guilty to the charge of aggravated murder without any concessions in return from the state, two, 
in failing to adequately prepare for and present evidence on the question of future dangerousness during the penalty phase, and three, failing to conduct an adequate investigation and present evidence regarding petitioner's mental health and psychological trauma during the penalty phase. So uh, that says a lot. But to summarize, uh, they didn't spend enough time on this case. When they were proving the she's not dangerous in the future, they just didn't bring any evidence to argue it, which if you look at the fact that she didn't really abuse her other children, I think they could have made an argument there. I know it's so hard to fight for equity because on one hand, I'm like, these sons of bitches are looking at this case. They're looking at the pictures of that child and they saw what this woman did, no doubt. And then they're going to have to take all this time and money and public space to present a case to say her lawyers didn't protect her well enough. And, and it makes yeah. you want to be like, you know what? Actually, those lawyers do deserve the death penalty. But then you have to look at other cases Objectively. and go, okay, this black man has a public defender and they did not do an adequate job. Now he's spending his life in prison because he had a joint on him. And yes, that needs to be reviewed. So it's like so mm. frustrating because yeah, this is it's madness. She, I mean, she did some awful things. So like I said in the beginning, it is one where you're like, yeah, she probably deserves to die. But you have to look at it objectively. If yeah. they didn't do their job mm-hmm. to the best of their ability, she deserves to And that's to how be it should considered. be for everyone. Exactly. So you got to set so you that if start she somewhere. is in jail forever, we can confidently say rot in jail. Correct. Goodbye. And here's where it gets a little gnarly. The DA, of course, appealed this due to their belief that the sentence should be upheld. But really, everything is working against them on this, because in 2019, the Oregon legislature passed a change to the penalty for cases regarding the murder of children through torture. This was SB 1013. This was the bill that redefined the definitions of aggravated murder and first degree murder, which then, of course, would have an impact on the sentencing based on those crimes. Basically, it says that anyone who's convicted of the torture murder of their child over the age of 14 after January 1st, 2020, has a maximum sentence of life without parole. The death penalty is completely off the table. Since her conviction is now moot, she has to go back to court, but Angela no longer has to worry about the death sentence. Which you just stole my word because I was going to say, well, that's moot because since <laughs> it's Oregon and every go- it's it's like to appease everyone, like you said in the beginning, we have it on the books. But so that people that believe in it are who's like, to we say have our, it. Who's to say our next governor isn't a supporter of the death penalty? So- I'll tell you who. The voters. <laughs> Make sure you're registered, everyone. <laughs> So, I mean, it's just interesting because the she fit the definition initially, gets the sentence, they changed the definition, and now it doesn't apply to her. So she's going to go through this retrial and, you know, doesn't need to even worry about it. So she she's really, I mean, yeah, life in prison sucks, but yeah. she's getting her way pretty much. The people like this where it's like slam dunk, no question, it's not like, is it a wrongful conviction? When it's like that, how about... We compromise. We don't do death penalty. They just go to death row because it's really boring on death row. <laughs> you don't get to see anyone. You don't it get is. to go anywhere. It is. We just have to take that the loitering things you have to do for the death sentence. Why it's so expensive is they have right. all of these steps they have to I go know. through the Supreme it's... Court and they're allowed their appeals and all that. So she had already spent about a million dollars on her case. Right. Good. And then but now we're having to do it again. Right. 
In August of 2020, the DA and defense came to an agreement. Rather than pursue additional appeals in the case of aggravated murder, Angela McAnulty would be given a true life sentence, life without parole for the murder of her daughter. Richard has not filed any kind of appeal to his 25-year minimum sentence, which I'm going to say I'm happy about that. Like, good for you, yeah. because most people appeal. He knew he did wrong. Mm-hmm. He's doing a He's sentence. He's accepting his punishment. And not to excuse him in any way, but I appreciate that. Yes. Well, we talk about that almost every case, how we're just baffled that people can not only commit these horrendous acts, but then have Try the to talk nerve. Out of it. To know yeah. that they're going to waste public time, public money, all of it. I love it. They, just to maybe maybe get parole, maybe when they're 50. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, ugh. Just accept Thank what you, you for did. not wasting our time, I Richard. Know. Also, burn in hell, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is probably pretty hellish in there when you abused a child. So I think a lot of people see the many, many failings of CPS on this case. So I do want to point out that after Angela's trial, Jeanette's estate sued them. They did pay for her funeral costs, which were a total of $7,000, but litigation continued and they ended up settling for $1.5 million for failing to help Jeanette. The bonkers part of this, a lot of that money went to Jeanette's father, who was absent her entire life because he was a drug addict. Most people think that money should have gone to her little brother and sister. In 2012, the state was looking to officially revoke the McAnulty's parental rights of Patience and Richard Jr. They wanted them to be eligible for adoption. Richard Jr., who was eight at the time, was the only biological child of the pair, and eventually his parents did relinquish their rights without being forced. Patience, however, told the judge she didn't want to be adopted, but she was totally happy in her foster care home. I'm not sure where the two eldest sons are these days or a recent update on all of the children, but I truly hope that they are happy and healthy and have stability in their lives. All right. Shoot me with them questions. When she had died and she was obviously so visibly abused, Mm -hmm. had she, and I'm sorry if you had said this, had she not been in school for a long time or was it summer break or something? No. So Angela was confronted by CPS and then she immediately, once it was closed, she immediately took her out of school and said Uh, she was homeschooling her and then it escalated and that coincided and, you know, I think that was like late 2008 and the next year was just awful. When it came to the CPS settlement... Mm -hmm. Did you find anything about where they admitted their wrongdoing or what had happened that they would get all those reports no, and drop the ball? I mean, part of the settlement is that you don't disclose that stuff. But I think I think they failed to follow up on a lot of those calls. And I, I think had they had they done their due diligence with each call, it would have been caught early. Yeah. I mean, this kid wrote a school official. Right. If they would have taken one look at her. They would have known she wasn't lying. Well, and there's just so much failure everywhere. It's like the second that the case is closed. Because so when you make a report, especially if you're like through a school system or whatever, you're informed of what happened. So like you get in touch, you're Mm -hmm. then connected to the actual caseworker and you discuss it with them. And then they let you know what not necessarily what they found, but they'll call and say we're pursuing this or they call and say we're closing it or they'll call you after they've been pursuing it and say it's closed. So if I'm one of the people that have called it in 
and then I get a call that it's closed and like within a very tight window that kid is withdrawn. Again, that's another level of failing and I get it. There are a lot of kids and you can't follow up and And you go, hey, they're the parent. I can't decide for them. That very well could have been it. I'm not, you know, I don't have information on that. And and perhaps somebody who's close to the area does know this and can reach out to us about that. But I I wanted to give you some context because I don't think, especially people who don't have kids, Mm -hmm. her weight. Yeah. So I said she was less, she was about 48 to 50 pounds and she was 15. Mm -hmm. And and just for some perspective, an average 15-year-old girl is between 105 and 120 pounds. Yeah, so I was going to say like 15, I was probably about that's 130 more than, or so. Or that, you know, half her, that's less than half the weight. Yeah. So uh, this was very reminiscent. And I don't know if you remember, I did a Patreon episode on Malia Garcia yeah. in Bend. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Found her on the floor, unresponsive. Half the weight she should have mm-hmm. been. Very visibly malnourished. Had to do long punishments. They called her names. It was very, very similar. So it was yeah. kind of um, traumatizing to do this case. Yeah. I did have reminded. moments where I'm like, wait, have we done this story? Yeah, it's eerily similar. Right. Eerily similar. Um, yeah, any other questions? Because I have a few well, points I, to Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, it's hard. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of the same feeling of, a year ago when really everyone was first saying like F the police. And then you're like, well, you don't want to say that because they're hel- helping people. And then you learn of all the corruption. You're like, oh, no, I mean it. And it kind of feels the same way with CPS where they're helping or they're trying to. But the system isn't working. But it's so broke. And it's like, so you don't want to be mad at the people that are trying to look mm-hmm. out. And, you know, I looked into uh, working for with CPS but even just to start out, like your starting job is 12-hour shifts overnight. Getting calls about the worst stuff. I mean, yeah. the stuff I've called in it's is saint- nothing. It's honestly saintly work. It's just when you get a bad apple or somebody who doesn't do their job correctly, it has real life effects. I always joke well, at it's work. Like, and it pays well, but it, not that well. That's you know? the thing. It's like, so it's it's like, like you don't have that many we people. We entrust these people with our children for the majority of the day, yet we're not willing to pay a little bit more for their salary. Right. No, but I, I'm, I, I think about my job and I'm like, OK, if I screw up, I'm, you know, I could have a million dollar impact because of what I do. Nobody's going to die. Right. The, literally, these people could die if they screw up their job. Yep. So it really is uh, backwards. And I think a lot of people get into it. They're very caring and empathetic and they want to do good. But when you go into a system that's broken and not working, you can only do so much. And you're much. understaffed and you get calls. The worst thing, anyone in education knows what I'm talking about. When you have to call CPS and you don't get time in the day to sneak off because you're always like, I got to call CPS. I got to go. Because if you have to wait till after school, <laughs> I'm sure we could all hum along to the music. You're on hold for like an hour. Yeah. And it says we're experiencing high call volume because as soon as school gets out, that line is busy every day. That's horrible. So it's like. And, you know, you... Well, it seems like an opportunity to embrace a new way of life. And I say this because we've seen a lot of positive things happen with online counseling. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of apps out there where everyday Joe Schmoes like me can do a 30-hour course, do some sit-ins on calls, and then I can help rape victims. Right. Like, there are things we could be doing to help this process. We just have to think outside of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if we're ready to do that yet mm-hmm. as a society. Or looking at funding. It's like what looking at local government, mm-hmm. because it's like this isn't 
federal stuff because maybe some states the CPS is well funded and does fine. I doubt that that's the case anywhere. If you were able to take money from something else to say this is the priority. Mm -hmm. And also, let's even go back a step and say, before we even have to put into CPS, let's look at parenting. And before we even look at parenting classes, let's look at sex ed classes. And let's really like obviously a a chain. It's like and it is. So it's like that's where it's hard because you you just want to sit. You know, I'm looking at um, a little teaser here doing the Susan Powell case. Mm, And that's mm -hmm. involving CPS. So it is really hard because, like you said, it's saintly work. It is. And when that ball is dropped, it's big time dropped, like the the worst. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a tough thing. So thank you to anyone listening that works in Child Protective Services. Because it is incredibly hard, overwhelming, terrible, traumatic work. And I imagine it has a, a, a time limit where you oh, just yeah. have to stop doing it at some point. Yeah. So let's let's go back to the the death penalty, the mm, revoking mm-hmm. it. So yeah. one, one of the arguments I found very interesting because it coincides with another case I'm working on. Yeah. So one of the arguments in support of Angela's original lawyers totally dropping the ball in her case was they were actually defending Joshua Turnridge at the exact same time. So anyone who doesn't know, he was on trial up against the death penalty as well for a bombing that happened in Oregon that killed an official. So they basically you can imagine her case was a full time job, but here they're doing two full time jobs, two lawyers, and they just didn't do it well. So it wasn't like, oh, our firm is handling this. It's no, two it lawyers two were doing lawyers. two death penalty mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. So I feel like that's crazy. Is that a problem? Should you have a limit on how many death penalty yeah. aggravated murder cases you can do at one time? So I think they were in the right. Um, and, you know, in Oregon, we don't see a lot of death penalty cases. Right. So it's like maybe, it should she, be maybe she shouldn't have been on mm-hmm. that. You know, so uh, I found that interesting, especially since I'm actively working on that case right now. Also, I do want to recognize we won't be able to edit that I said double looked. I meant double checked. <laughs> Go ahead. People people know us by now, right? You, you guys, if you listen to the bloopers, we're you good. know we can't we're talk. We're good. We're good. Um, so another interesting point that came up, and I, I felt like you maybe thought this at one point. I was waiting for you to ask it. Angela's brother, George, so her younger brother, he wrote that book, Inside Those Walls, and he reflected on how he often wonders if Angela was sexually abused by their father. And his argument was him and all of his siblings, his father would kick him outside for hours. Like he'd be like, get out of the house. But Angela never went with them. She always Mm. stayed inside. She always acted differently than the other kids. She was more shy and reserved and always followed the rules, was hardly ever in trouble. So he thinks, you know, was my dad doing things to her when we weren't around is that why she's so I mean traumatized? that kind of makes yeah that she would that she would be the most extreme behaviorally coming out of that mm-hmm. that would make sense and also that her behavior would change after her daughter stayed with him yeah again going mm-hmm. into and then another thing he so said many things he said later um why Jerry had such an issue with her coming over to visit the kids He said as she got older, she looked a lot like their mother, Nancy, and he thought that that had an impact. So it was like, I mean, I could argue it in my brain. He was sexually abusing her. She looked like his wife, but then he hated her because she looked like his wife. I don't know. And then she hates her daughter because daughter got molested by her dad, who she loved but hated. You can make up a million stories. Yeah, the psychology would go forever. And I'll say none of this has been like 
written by anyone right. outside of the family, but this was his internal thoughts about why is she like this? Well, and that seems fair for how abusive the dad was. Right. That wouldn't be some sort of shocking wouldn't revelation. Be yeah. Right. Correct. So with that legal team, um, to jump back to that, when they were presenting a defense, were they was it only for sentencing or were they trying to get her found not guilty? So that's the thing. The, the entire time she was saying not guilty. So you would have thought they had been preparing that entire two years for supporting her not guilty so what plea. Was, did they even have a defense? Um, I think a lot of it was just, oh, she's abused, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. No, it was. That's the thing. Like, it wasn't good. But right. they, I mean, she pulled out all the stops when on day one she says not guilty or she says guilty excuse me it had been not guilty not guilty not guilty and then first day of trial when they're going in to do this not guilty she says guilty so they convinced her of that but uh you'll notice i said without any um without the state giving anything in return usually it's like a reduced taking a plea deal like don't give me death penalty i'll say guilty to 25 years they didn't even attempt that that is fair. That they yeah, it's totally fair. Fought, but... As much as I loathe her and I think she's disgusting, it was a valid argument yeah. and it deserved to be revoked. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. I know. So if anyone out there listening knew Jeanette, it maybe you went to school with her, maybe you were her friend or you worked at the school, I would love it if you emailed us and told us some memories of her. In the research, there was very little information about what Jeanette was all about, who she was, what she liked. And I know she has friends because at least one of those friends' parents called child welfare. So I find it very sad that when you read about a child's short life, that it's documented only as what happened to them instead of who they were. So if you want to, send us an email so we can know a little bit about her. And also, if you guys have a uh, favorite charity that helps children in need, let us know because I'm looking to make a donation in her name. Nice. Nancy demanded that Jerry end thing <laughs> access to see her children, grandchildren. Fuck. <laughs> Ferrero Rocher. Ooh, no, those aren't good. What am I saying? I don't like nuts. <laughs> The emergency room phonician. What's that? (laughs) What's that role? It's like a magician. (laughs) They knew she would have lived in both. No, that's just made up. I'm not even reading. (laughs) Ma'am, please stick to the script. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 